with, uh, we began talking about the holiness of God, so we will um, see if we finish the holiness tonight, and then we will move on to the wisdom of God. So last week we defined the holiness of God, and uh, tonight I want to begin uh, by uh, talking about the goodness, truth, and justice of God and his relationship to fallen creation and how these three things specifically, the goodness, the truth, and the justice of God relate to the holiness of God. Um, many theologians don't draw any distinction whatsoever between the holiness of God and goodness, truth, and justice. They, they see them as um, subsets, I guess you could say, of his holiness. Um, holiness is not an attribute that is distinct from these things, um, but a name which includes them all in view of their opposition to the contrary. So... Um, in other words, uh, the opposite of goodness being, I guess, badness, we could say. Um, obviously, if God is holy, then there is no badness, therefore goodness finds itself under the holiness of God. And we could go through all three of those things, um, uh, lies and injustice. Um, obviously, those are not in God, and therefore his holiness contains uh, the truth that is um, that is right uh, in those um, in those attributes. So, obviously, we have to take great care to not undermine the simplicity of God, um, and not elevate the holiness of God over and above any of His other attributes. But it can be said that the holiness of God is a moral attribute that creates the greatest distance between God and human beings, because it is something that is coexistent with and applicable to. Everything that can be said of God. He is holy in everything that reveals him. In his goodness, in his grace, in his justice, in his wrath, it all contains his holiness. God is transcendently separate. The holiness of God covers all aspects of his transcendent greatness and his moral perfection, and therefore it is an attribute of all of his attributes. So we've talked about this a bit before, but when we say God is wrath, we talk about his holy wrath. When God is love, his holy love, and on down that road. It points um, to, every bit of God's attributes points to his holiness. Every facet of his nature, every aspect of his character may be properly spoken of as holy because it is his now, the justice of God is the necessary response to evil as a result of his holiness. And this is where justice gets tied into this. So, for example, when Isaiah saw the Lord seated upon the throne in Isaiah 6, high and lifted up, his only reasonable response was to recognize his own moral failure alongside uh, the moral bankruptcy of his fellow man. Uh, there was no hope for them in the presence of a thrice holy God. Remember Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, and his immediate response is, Woe am I. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. However, 
What happens? A coal is pressed to his lips by a seraph, and the goodness of God's mercy was on display. Verses 6 and 7 say, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed, and your sin is blotted out. So there's a paradox here. We see the holiness is that God judges everything that is unholy, and yet he provides a way of cleansing and sanctification for sinners. Even beyond terrible devastation and destruction, God's purpose for his people would continue. The cleansing and preservation of Isaiah himself anticipated the salvation of God's people. His offspring would be holy because of his actions on their behalf. So, it's, it's quite a paradox to speak of the holiness of God and how he's unapproachable. Um, our confession speaks of him in that nature as a, a light, uh, unapproachable by man. Um, he can have no, uh, no bit of unholiness or darkness or any adjective you might use uh, to describe sin uh, in his presence, and yet he absolves the sins of mankind. He calls them his own and welcomes them into his presence. So there's a great paradox here, and we see it worked out uh, throughout all of the scriptures, but we see references to it frequently throughout the Bible. Um, And of course, uh, we understand that to be um, God's provision made through Jesus Christ, um, that we are able to approach unto the Lord and his holiness because of Christ. And this is why righteousness, the imputation, the giving of Christ's righteousness to his people is so important. And we can't leave that out of the gospel. If we only talk about Jesus dying for our sins, uh, we don't have the righteousness yet that is necessary to stand before the holy God. We need righteousness. And that's provided uh, in Christ. Now, the holiness of God is made most evident to us in the revelation of God's law. The law of God is etched on the conscience of every human being. Uh, Paul speaks of this in Romans 1. It was established from the very beginning. And from the very beginning, I believe the law was given in the garden. And I think if you... um, You know, everyone looks to the law in Exodus 20 at Mount Sinai and thinks that's when God first gave the law. I encourage you to look at Genesis 26.5 if you have, uh, if you want to kind of toss that verse around and think through that a little bit. But the law of God was established at the very beginning. It was revealed again at Mount Sinai. And Jeremiah 31 tells us it's written on the hearts of every partaker of the new covenant. So God's law is everywhere. We are... Uh, very aware of it, we have a very keen understanding of God's law as human beings. As a summary of God's true nature, the law presents the rigid, moral, unbendingness of God, which is to say it's a reflection of his holiness made manifest for mankind to see. The law tells us that God is this way. This is a revelation of his character and his purity. And he will not bend one iota. There's no convincing him to do otherwise. 
you know, sometimes as parents, uh, if we're having a bad day and we're a little tired and our kids are nagging enough, they might be able to wear us down a little bit. We can never wear God down. We can never convince him to move against his law. It is unbending. That is a reflection of his absolute holiness. Now, although God is holy and in being holy is separate from all that is profane, he does not hide his holiness. He makes it known in all of creation. God makes the whole earth his holy dwelling place because his omnipresence is holy. God is holy in his essence. Okay, so that's an attribute of God, but we also speak of things, other things being holy, people, places, and things, but those things have to be made holy by the holy God or by his energies, by his doing. Only God is holy, therefore only God can consecrate or sanctify something, set something aside to be made holy. When things are made holy, when they are consecrated, they are set apart unto purity. They are to be used in a pure way. They are to reflect purity as well as simple apartness. So God's command to his people several times in the scriptures is to be holy. It's a command to be separate and to be pure from that which is profane. And it's illustrated in the holiness code of the Old Testament, which is a reflection of the moral perfection of God displayed within his people. So as you read through books like Leviticus and say, man, this is tough and there's all of these things that I don't know what to do with them. Over and above all of it is this, the holiness of God. It's being... Um, it's being represented. It's, a, it's all a, a signpost or a marker to point forward to the holiness of God. When two things are not to be mixed together, one is holy and one is profane in the eyes of God. And therefore, he's teaching them this, um, this principle of separation. Um, of course, the holiness that God commands must also be provided. And indeed, it's the great mercy of God that makes holy that which is profane at the expense of his own son. Um, it's useful in thinking about God's holiness to contrast the character of God uh, with the character of man. And I think in doing so, our admiration and love for God, our fervor uh, in devotion, our worship before God, and the beauty of his holiness, all of these things are awakened all the more as we consider God's holiness. Um, it the holiness of God calls us to imitate him. Uh, to, uh, he says himself, be holy for I am holy. We're called into this ourselves. So the personal holiness of a Christian is a, uh, a reflection of sorts of uh, the holiness of the God that we serve, are called to. Um, now, obviously, we fall far short of God's holiness, and yet we are. Uh, there's a reason why God calls his people specifically to be holy. Um, it's a representation of who our God is. Uh, he set the standard in himself, and as the holy God calls on mankind to imitate his holiness, he does so in presenting the pattern of holiness in his law and his works of creation and redemption. The first evidence of God making something holy 
is found in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3. Now, why is that interesting? Before we read the verse, why is it interesting that God made something holy in Genesis 2, 3? Where are we in Genesis 2? Before the fall. We are pre-fall in Genesis 2, and yet God picks something specifically, and the scriptures say he made it holy. Now, we look all around at everything around in the garden, all that God had created, and he looks at all of it, and he says, this is good, and at the completion of creation, he says, it's very good. But in the midst of all of it, he created something else and says, uh, the scriptures say that he made it holy. What was that? Yeah, the Sabbath. Genesis 2, 3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. It was a day set aside. It was sanctified by God from the ordinary activities of the world, and they were to be dedicated solely to the service of God. Now, does that mean everything else that was going on was... Um, was profane or evil or unworthy or anything of that nature. No, but God is highlighting something. He's setting something aside specifically for a purpose to represent something of himself. This is a day uh, that I've created solely for me, for man to recognize my holiness, for man to recognize my work, for man to recognize my creation and redemption and to worship and delight in these things. Um, likewise, Exodus twenty nine forty four, the Lord gives word that he will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron and his sons I will consecrate to serve me. As priests. Now, the idea portrayed is the dedication of service and loyalty to God that is positively unique and pure. So, when God, whenever we see God saying, I will make someone or something holy, it has a specific uh, purpose um, that is unique and obviously set aside for purity. In another instance, God commanded the Israelites to obey his voice. He said to them, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is, God is calling them to relational holiness, for them to be separate from evil and sin. And he's also calling them to moral holiness, to be devoted to God. So we, if you recall from last week, we have these two elements of holiness. Relational holiness, how we relate to things that are unholy. There's a separation there. And moral holiness, which is our relation to God, our devotion to God. Let me uh, read a quote here from Stephen Charnock from The Existence and Attributes of God. He says, no creature can be essentially holy because mutable. Holiness is the substance of God, but a quality and accident in a creature. God is infinitely holy, creatures finitely holy. He is holy from himself. Creatures are holy being derived from him. He is not only holy, but holiness. Holiness in the highest degree is his sole prerogative. As the highest heaven is called the heavens of heavens, 
because it embraceth in the circle all the heavens, and contains the magnitude of them, and has a greater vastness above all that is enclosed, so is God the Holy of Holies. He contains the holiness of all creatures put together, and infinitely more. As all the wisdom, excellency, and power of the creatures is compared with the wisdom, excellency, and power of God, is but folly, vileness, and weakness. So the highest created purity, if set in parallel with God, is but impurity and uncleanliness. Thou only art holy. I love this. It is like the light of a glowworm to that of the sun. Job 13.15 The heavens are not pure in his sight, and his angels he charged with folly. Though God hath crowned the angels with an unspotted, unspotted sanctity, and placed them in a habitation of glory, Yet, as illustrious as they are, they have an unworthiness in their own nature to appear before the throne of so holy a God. Their holiness grows dim and pale in his presence. So the essence of God, or the, the character of God, and the works of God are all holy in their greatest and fullest sense. The Psalms say, The Lord is not merely called holy, but is holiness itself. From the holy character of God comes his, his hatred and contempt for sin. If God is holy, then he must hate sin. We talked about that last week. And from his holy character proceeds his delight in holiness. So we see the, the procession here. It is his essence. It is his very character. It is who he is. And if that's the case, then he must hate sin and he must delight in holiness itself. Therefore, his separation made all the more important. And his setting aside things for holiness, he delights in that as well. So, any, uh, any thoughts or questions uh, related to the holiness of God? Yeah. Hmm. Well, I I think what's being communicated in Genesis 2 is holiness in the sense that it's set aside or it's set apart for a specific reason that's related to God in worship. Um, That's what the Lord's Day is for, why God created the Sabbath. So it's not necessarily to say that everything else was unholy or that it was um, in any way defiled because we can't say that. It was... um, Right. I th- so think in this sense, holiness in terms of something being set apart, um, sanctified for a specific purpose. Yeah, where you draw the lines on those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, yeah, certainly. I think, you know, the Lord, as you read through the scriptures, he gives... Um, he gives a lot of detail in terms of what should and shouldn't be done in relationship to the Sabbath day. Um, to add to that is the very error of the Pharisees that Jesus constantly rebuked. So, you know, to to choose anything that's not ex- expressly given in the scriptures to say this is something that shouldn't be um, participated in on the Sabbath day um, that the Lord hasn't given, then we're going to fall into that error and say, well, you can't dip a radish in salt on the Lord's day because the salt's fermenting the radish or whatever, and that's causing work. Um, 
you know, it gets, it can get very silly, and that's exactly what happened. But there are certain things in broader categories. For instance, um, uh, the Old Testament speaks regularly about not participating in commerce on the Sabbath. Um, so anytime we're in a situation where there's an exchange of goods or monies and goods uh, on any level on the Sabbath day, God has said, don't participate in that. This is a day not for business, not for transactions, not for you interacting with man on that level, but for you to worship, for you to contemplate the works of God in creation and redemption. That's God's command. Um, he, he commands that uh, the fields um, uh, the fields and the animals be given rest on the Lord's Day. So, you know, if you're a farmer in an agrarian society, God commands that you're not out plowing your fields and picking corn on the Lord's Day, um, that these things are taken care of beforehand. Why? Because it's set apart as a reflection of his holiness. I think that's what's so often missed in that discussion about the Lord's Day and why people just reject it as, well, this is just legalism. Um, because what's missing is this element of what it's all about. It's not about what we can't do so much as it is about the holiness of God and our reflecting on his holiness and his goodness in creation and redemption. Um, and when we say goodness, of course, we're speaking of his holiness. So is that helpful? I think it says a lot about um, the significance of the Sabbath, though, and something I like to point out to those who don't believe in its continuation today it's the only of the ten commandments it's the only one that's expressly laid out in creation its foundation is in creation now all of the others are certainly implied and i believe written on the heart of adam and communicated to adam um, but the only one that made holy writ the only one written in scriptures is the sabbath day and in the Ten Commandments, the only of the Ten Commandments that references creation is uh, is the Fourth Commandment. So it's very, very significant, I believe, um, as it relates to God setting it aside and calling it holy. Absolutely. Any other thoughts or questions? Yeah, it does. Um, so, uh, yes and no. Um, you know, we don't we don't necessarily. Um, this may be more of a designation for us, more so than in how we are identifying God. But we don't talk about God's wrath as God's love wrath, <laughs> but we would talk about His holy wrath. We talk about His holy love. Um, that all of the things that God is in His attributes in his character are by nature a result of his holiness now that doesn't elevate his holiness as being greater or more important but rather it's so interrelated in all of his other attributes that it can't we can't ever talk about it apart from them whereas we can um, for us not not that not that God isolates any of his attributes, but we can isolate one and speak of it as we're doing now. We're, we're able to isolate these attributes and speak of them distinctly. Well, we have to understand each and every one of them as being contained within his holiness. 
whereas the others, while they're present and while they're fully in force at all times um, and fully present at all times, as his omnipresence would suggest, we don't speak of them all in the same way as we would his holy. Does that make sense? Sure, but again, you're, so you use word, you use like, that's why theologians would talk about God's justice as being the same as speaking of his holiness. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think, um, because why? His justice, his wrath is a direct result of his holiness. If God wasn't holy, then wrath wouldn't be necessary. Um, so it's, it is, in one sense, there's a limitation in language there. Another sense is never being able to fully conceptualize the simplicity of God and understanding how all of that works out. Um, but also understanding that there is, there are layers of necessity, I guess. If God is this, then he has to be this. If God is just, then he has to be holy um, to be completely, 100% untaintedly just, um, and vice versa. If God is holy, he must be just. And so while you might be able to make the argument that, and some try to, that some of God's attributes aren't, aren't dependent upon others, um, this is one that um, all of them are dependent upon. Um, and vice versa. So while, for, for instance, someone would, there are many who deny God's um, um, impassibility. Well, they would say, you, could, you know, it doesn't exist, and holiness doesn't um, necessitate impassibility. But if God's impassible, then he has to be holy. So I think it's a matter of how, what direction we're looking. I don't know if that's, did you have something to add, Russ? Yeah, that's exactly right. I was um, actually almost every book I read, uh, the author pointed that out. The only time you see uh, threefold usage of any of God's attributes is His holiness. So, something repeated in threes biblically is a signification of perfection, but also points to um, the the uh, Holy Trinity. God is holy, holy, holy in three persons. Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy, Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's exactly right. Any other thoughts or questions on holiness? Really recommend that every Christian reads The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Fantastic book that will shut your mouth <laughs> and cause you to worship. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how else to say that. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. All right, a few minutes left. Let's move on. Um, the statement in your confession that says God is most wise. So, obviously, the wisdom of God. Now, the Apostle Paul, after penning the greatest theological discourse in the history of the world, ended his epistle to the Romans with a doxological praise to God, giving him glory. Romans 16.27, this is how he ended the whole letter. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Now, of all of God's attributes, it's really interesting that Paul concludes with God's wisdom as that which he would highlight and praise in light of all that he has written for 16 chapters. And yet, when, when you consider the great truths of God that are expounded with regards um, throughout the book of Romans with regards to the law and the gospel, um, the only fitting conclusion that one could draw is that God truly is the only wise God. When compared to God, all men are fools and can lay no claim to wisdom whatsoever. As with all of the other attributes of God, he is so wise that he is wisdom itself. Other statements affirming the wisdom of God in the scriptures include Job saying that God is wise in heart in Job 9.4. Job 12.13 says, With him are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. Uh, the psalmist declares the wisdom of God evidenced in creation in Psalm 104.24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. So as God created the universe, it was perfectly suited to bring him glory, both in its day-by-day processes and its being worked out day-by-day, and in the goals or the ends for which he created it. Even now, while we still see all the effects of sin and the curse on the natural world, we should be amazed at how harmonious and intricate God's creation is. It speaks to his wisdom. God's wisdom means that he always wills the greatest ends and the greatest means to accomplish those ends. So um, if that's all you understand of God's wisdom, that's the main emphasis. He always wills the greatest ends and the greatest means to accomplish those ends. He not only knows all things, but he also knows what to do with them. He knows how to exercise his government over them. He has never made a foolish decision. He has never conceived of a bad plan. He is completely enveloped in pure wisdom, knowing always the right thing to do. God doesn't ever sit and think, hmm, what should I do now? This is a tricky one. I need to make a decision here. So God decrees the end of all things, and in doing so, he ordains and directs the means by which the ends will be established. Now, even think about this, even in the finite wisdom of us, the ends that are pursued on our part that have the greatest opportunity for success are accompanied with an established plan for execution, right? They're not pursued by just saying, here's where I want to get, and we cross our fingers and just hope it happens. Chances of that plan turning out as we desire aren't very good without any means established in order to get there. So in other words, the means are methodically implemented to bring about the desired ends. Now, with us, that doesn't mean that the ends will always happen. We've all experienced that. But they have a better chance of success given the proper uh, means to that end. So even greater, obviously, must be said of God. He does not set an end and randomly shoot at his mark with the hope of hitting somewhere near it as the open theist would say. 
His ends will be accomplished in the exact manner he desires because he has decreed that the means and the ends will be what they are. So, let me give us a good biblical example of this that all of us will be familiar with. The wisdom of God in the life of Joseph. Do a good summary of Joseph's life here. When Joseph... About 17 years old, he endured the jealous hatred of his brothers, who the Bible says hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Their anger toward Joseph only increased when he told them of his dreams, and he was increasing in his ability for dream interpretation. The father of Joseph and his brothers, Jacob, sent uh, Joseph to receive a report from his brothers who had gone out uh, with their flock to Shechem, some about 60 miles from where they were living. So Joseph finds his brothers there in a different place called Dothan, and as soon as they saw him coming, they began to talk amongst themselves and plot against him. They plan uh, to kill Joseph, right? But Reuben, one of the brothers, opposes the plan and instead suggests that they go ahead and sell him to a band of uh, Ishmaelite merchants for 20 shekels of silver, and so they did that. So if you ever think you have bad siblings... Wow. Um, the, the Ishmaelites brought Joseph to the Egyptian market, and they sold him to be a slave of Potiphar, who is basically a, a governor, I guess you could say, under Pharaoh. So, his brothers hate him. They want to kill him. They decide, let's sell him. They sell him into slavery. Um, the Ishmaelites take him to the auction block in Egypt, and he's sold to be a slave of Potiphar. Potiphar made him to be the overseer of his house. And we all know famously what happened. Potiphar's wife had a thing for Joseph. He was a strapping young lad, and she had to get her hands on him. Um, and she tried to get him to lay with her in good biblical parlance. And he would not, and therefore... Um, accused him of raping her. She staged a rape and accused him of of forcing himself upon her. So he was immediately cast into prison, where he remained at least two years. Now the Lord showed Joseph favor in prison. The keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of the prisoners who were with him. After some time, the chief of the cupbearers and the chief of the bakers of Pharaoh's household were also cast into the same prison with Joseph. Each of the men, those two men, they dreamed dreams on the same night, and Joseph accurately interpreted them. And what did they say to Joseph? Oh, well, we're going to get out of prison. What did they say? We will remember you. And they got out of prison, and they totally forgot about Joseph. Until one day, Pharaoh had a dream, and they said, Oh, yeah, about two years ago when I was in jail, there's this guy there, and he... He's got a knack for this dream interpreting thing. Um, so Pharaoh has this dream. Joseph removed from prison. He interprets the dream of the king, who in turn was so pleased with Joseph's gift that he set him over the entire land of Egypt. So he's essentially second in command to Pharaoh over all of Egypt. Now, as Joseph predicted in interpreting the dream, seven years of abundant crop arrived, during which time he stores up this enormous amount of corn in uh, granaries that were built for that very purpose. And following the seven years of abundance, as Joseph predicted, were seven years of famine over all the face of the earth. 
And then when all the countries came into Egypt to Joseph to buy corn. Now, Joseph disagreements as to whether or not he was a righteous man in this regard or not. But the Egyptians came to him completely out of money. They didn't have any money. So Joseph said, well, give us your livestock in return for the grain. So essentially Pharaoh owned all of the livestock in the land. It all became his. That's how they paid. Now, during this time, Joseph's brothers traveled to Egypt to buy corn They don't recognize who Joseph is. He directs them to return and bring Jacob and the family to the land of Egypt and essentially promises that upon their arrival they would be taken care of. Accordingly, Jacob and his family, together with all that they had, went down to Egypt. They were settled in the land of Goshen, not Goshen Road, where Joseph met his father, and it says he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. I like how the Bible describes that. So now, Jacob and all the sons and Joseph are all living there. The father dies, Jacob dies, and then realizing the power and position of their brother, they all, uh, whom they sold into slavery, um, all of the brothers were terribly afraid for their lives. They assumed that Joseph would have them killed, saying, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. The brothers sent message to Joseph, gave themselves over to him as his servants. But in acknowledging, and this is the whole point of it all, in acknowledging the sovereignty and wisdom of God in all of his difficult circumstances, Joseph responds to his brothers, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So you see, Joseph's life is this vivid example of God's wisdom applied. While all these circumstances surrounding Joseph's life, all these things that he endured were nothing that any man would ever desire were he to establish his own means, the wisdom of God is on display when the ends clearly justify these very difficult means. There are many instances in the lives of God's people and in the history of the world that in the eyes of man are senseless and void of any true meaning or purpose whatsoever. But the wisdom of God, um, understanding the wisdom of God, understands that these are necessary means to bring about the great ends that he has decreed. So Romans 8.28 is very much a statement about the wisdom of God. He works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That's speaking of all of the means that we endure, all the circumstances in our life that seem difficult, dark providences. They're necessary means to bring about the greatest ends that God has in store. And he has has established the means and the ends. And so these things of God's providence speak to his wisdom. God is wise in these things where we would never look to them uh, to be a part of our lives in our own fallible, foolish um, uh, ways of thinking. So we're out of time. We'll stop there, but I do want to take any uh, questions or comments on any of that. All right, great. Well, I will um, leave these up here. If you didn't get any of the packets um, or you're missing some or all of them, please come get them. Um, once we get through the attributes of this paragraph, we will, I'll 
print this one out as well. We are almost through paragraph one. <laughs> we'll be there soon. I promise when we get to some other sections, they'll speed along a little bit more. But the doctrine of God is pretty weighty. There's a lot to, to deal with here. So let's, uh, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you again so much for the opportunity to gather, to pray together, um, to learn, and to turn to the Word to know more of your uh, greatness, of your holiness, of your wisdom. And Lord, I pray that you help us all to consider these great truths of your essence, of your nature, of your character, and that it would cause greater worship in all of us, that we would just be in great awe for who you are and the very fact that you have allowed us to speak to you now, to come before you and call you Father, and to be your children with the great eternal hope that we have because of the work of Christ Jesus in taking upon himself the wrath that was due to us and granting to us his righteousness that we can stand before you and be claimed not guilty. And so we pray, Lord, that this forever um, fills us with a great sense of joy, with great reverence and awe, and that we are constantly spurred to worship. Lord, we pray that your holiness reminds us of your hatred for sin, and that you would build within each of us a great hatred for sin as well. We pray that your wisdom is a reminder to us in the midst of trials and difficult circumstances that your means are necessary to bring about the greatest ends. And Lord, in all of these things, we pray that you help us to have a greater trust and reliance upon you and to cast aside the things of this world that we so tightly cling on to, knowing that you are holy, wise, and infinite, and that all the things of this world are quickly perishing but you endure forever, and you've called us to do the same with you. And so we pray, Lord, all of these things with grateful hearts, um, and we, we ask, God, that you uh, would, would do this thing of worship in our hearts for your sake, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good night.